So welcome to the predictions panel. You may have noticed I am not Ted Cohen. I am Tim Quirk. Ted Cohen cannot be here, sadly. So instead of making predictions, I get the easy job. I just get to sort of solicit the predictions. I used to be in a band. I used to work at Rhapsody. Now I work at Google. That's my spiel. I'm going to ask everybody on the panel to introduce themselves without turning it into a commercial for their company. And I'm also going to ask you, because I've been doing this for over 10 years. I've been on a lot of prediction panels. I've seen a lot of prediction panels. Interesting thing about prediction panels is nobody ever scores them. Nobody comes back five or 10 years later and says, you were fucking wrong, or wow, you got that right. No one ever says you got that right. So I'm going to ask everybody, when you introduce yourself, share with us the worst prediction you ever heard about the music and technology space. Oh, so I get to start? You start. Hi, I'm Theta Sanderford, VP of Digital Marketing for Universal Republic Records. Been doing digital marketing since the 90s and took a break um, after, I guess, around 2004 for a few years to work in the wine and spirits business. Became a certified sommelier and... Nice to be back um, working in music and working digital. I think the worst prediction I heard was at a meeting in 2000 with all the uh, digital heads of Universal at the time when iTunes came in to talk about their new store they were launching. And after the meeting, uh, people were sort of huddled up and said, oh, that's never going to work. <laughs> and now it's our number one store and number one retail. So... Don't believe the hype. My name is John Battelle. I am the chairman of a company called Federated Media, which sort of has based on a music model, but sees our musicians, so to speak, as independent publishers on the open web. I was also a um, co-founder of Wired way back in the day, and my worst prediction comes from an interview I did with a fellow who I'll keep <laughs> anonymous. Oh, who, that's no fun. Well... Uh, he's not quite yet dead, who predicted that this internet thing was a fad. That was back in 1995, so it was a much easier to make that prediction. I think that the worst prediction that I can remember is one I made. I do annual predictions every year on my site, and uh, I predicted in January uh, of 2010, this is before the iPad, but everybody knew it was coming, and you may recall it was called the iTablet by the press at that point. I predicted it would be Newton 2.0. That was wrong. <laughs> uh, my name is Mark Ruxin. I'm the founder and CEO of a social game company called Tastemaker X. So we're a social game for music discovery, but I've spent the past 20 years being a massive fan of music. I started my career as an A&R guy in the early 90s and, and knew something was going to happen in the music business, but I, I couldn't figure out exactly what it was. So I didn't predict Napster, but I predicted that the business would be disrupted pretty significantly. I think the worst prediction or the wrongest prediction I can remember around music was uh, I used to do a lot of speaking in the, in the ad tech circuit and I was sitting next to a guy that worked for a, a record label and it was about content on the web and he said that Google will never, ever figure out music, ever, and I, you know, I think I think the kids are watching a lot of YouTube music videos these days, so that was that was dead wrong. All right, I'm uh, Daryl Ballantyne. I'm the founder and CEO of LyricFind, and we do lyrics for everything. The worst prediction that I ever heard was back at Canadian Music Week, circa around 2004, probably, and there was a senior executive from a 
major uh, record label giving a presentation there. Uh, and he was talking about how people bought ringtones because the, uh, the platform for ringtones on cell phones was locked down and because it was really hard to pirate them and that. And that's why people weren't buying digital music because it was so easy to pirate it. And his prediction then was that very shortly they would figure out how to lock down CDs so that they couldn't be ripped and no, no piracy would happen and nobody would be able to make an MP3 or get an unprotected song digitally ever again. And I think he was a little bit off. In, in what year was that? That was like 2000, at the earliest 2004, latest 2005, one of the wow. two. All right, yeah. that reminds me, the worst prediction I ever heard that I can remember was at a dinner at Meetham. This was four or five years ago, and the major labels still weren't selling their, their songs as MP3s. There was still DRM on them. And I bet a dude from Sony that his, his label would be selling MP3s within a year. His prediction was that will never, ever happen. We bet 50 bucks on it. And actually, 53 weeks later, they started selling MP3s. So technically, I lost. But he was, he was an honorable dude, and he didn't make me pay him because he said, the spirit of the bet, I won. All right, so we're going to cover a couple different topics. I'm just going to throw them out there. If you've got some prognostication, some proclamation, or some educated guess, feel free to chime in. If you don't, don't, don't embarrass yourself. <laughs> so let's start with online radio. You know, it's, it's the way my daughter certainly listens to most music. I've noticed recently the shine seems to be coming off Pandora a little bit. People are complaining that they're not really honoring the Music Genome Project. The algorithm isn't so great. And is there a business model? And now they're lobbying Congress. And pe- I just saw a tweet saying, you know, don't give Pandora a handout. So how is online radio going to evolve? What, what will becomest of Pandora? All right. I'll, I'll jump in and be a little more bold on that. I will predict that Pandora will get a lower royalty rate because the way that it's structured right now does not scale at all. And I think the labels and everybody else wants those giant checks from Pandora, and they would rather have slightly less giant checks than no checks. And the reality is a lot of the arguments that are used against Pandora of, and, and comparisons with them and Sirius just really don't hold up to math and to, to ratios. People say that Sirius pays a much lower rate because their programming is much less music-centric. But if you took the ratio of how much music they play versus how much Pandora plays and just multiplied out Sirius's rate to the same ratio that Pandora is, Pandora's rate would be much lower than it is now. And it needs to be able to scale. You can't have a business like that that is paying per stream and does not have the ability to ever reach real profitability, especially when the streaming rates continue to go up and no ad sales team anywhere can keep up with that. It has to transition to either a lower per stream rate or a percentage of revenue. I'm not so sure. I think a lot of it has to do with who wins the election in November. We're going we're to get to that. That's going to be our final prediction. <laughs> Well, I already placed my absentee ballot on that, so um, I know where I stand. With regards to Pandora, I mean, it's only growing. Again, I'm, I'm the record company wonk, right? So, of course, I, we, we want money for our artists. We want money for our masters, and I would like for them to pay for it. I also see Pandora as this tremendous uh, discovery mechanism, and I put a ton of money in their pocket every single week with the mobile everywhere 
buying the advertising on, on their service. So I know from my end, they're getting a good twenty-five to $40,000 a month from just me for advertising our products. So the money is there. But, but $40,000 a month compared to their royalty payments is 0.00001%. Right. I'm one advertiser. There's no, tons. But, but at what level of advertising salespeople do they have to have to actually keep up with the royalty payments? Trust me, as someone who runs a business with around that, it doesn't exist. Yeah. You know, I don't have to pay royalties uh, on the content that we work with. Um, we're entirely driven by advertising our business model. Um, and frankly, it sucks. And, and what, I mean by, what I mean by that is, I, look, I love our marketing partners. I mean, Mark here, before he went off and became an entrepreneur in the music uh, business, was one of my marketing partners. And we did some amazing stuff around music. But it's really, really hard to get people who are creative paid only through advertising. It's super hard. And it's bespoke and it's, it, it takes more advertising and operations people than you can afford. It's very difficult to do. And I think the music business has always been in its own, own way when it comes to business model. Always. Because this argument is endless. <laughs> and what... I predict is that you know musicians are going to increasingly say fuck it and just drop out of this system and I hope they do but what they need and that you know is better tools on the internet in order to do that and connect with their audiences directly I'm not trying to I, I piss you off but I just think that it's just this this <laughs> argument is ever since well, look, the dawn of the internet. Okay, I'm going to come in here with a proclamation. I guess my prediction is people will ignore this because they always do. Um, <laughs> but it's an it's an interesting. I used in just full disclosure here when I worked at Rhapsody, I used to testify about online radio royalty rates and argue that they need to be lower. I wasn't doing that because I was an evil corporate motherfucker businessman trying to like get an advantage for my company. I desperately want artists to get paid. Um, but it's 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 it, one of the things that I love about online radio. One of the few good things about the DMCA, in my opinion, is that 50% of the money goes directly to artists. It can't be no middleman can come in and scoop it up. Um, so the argument I always heard from the label and sometimes from the creator side was, well, you have to set the rates as high as possible um, because once you set them, that's basically the ceiling, not the floor. Uh, and then people can negotiate lower rates if they want to. The issue is when you set the rates to the statutory rate, when you set it too high, um, encouraging people to go and negotiate directly with the labels, it's, it, became, it became in a company like Rhapsody's best interest to go do a direct deal. Um, I'm not aware that they ever did, um, but... The reason is you can get a lower rate. The problem is when you get a lower rate, you're not necessarily paying artists. I'm, I'm not trying to be confrontational here. I don't want to anger you, but I'm, I'm interested for your take on that. If, if is it, Am I accurate in my perception that if you set the rates too high uh, and companies go and negotiate, you know, online music companies go and negotiate directly with you guys for lower rates, there's a chance that less of that money will actually wind up in artists' pockets? I'm not angered. <laughs> I don't own Universal Music Group. You know? um, I care about our artists, and I care about the relationships that we have with the artists, and I care about the relationships that they have directly with their fans. That's what I'm employed to do, to maximize that relationship. And ultimately, that relationship results in a sale. Um, so I'm, you know, you're not going to see me get angry on this panel. Um, you are right, though. Um, all, it happens quite a bit. 
that artists, uh, sometimes partners, go directly and negotiate with artists. Um, and I can give an example. So one of the biggest records of the year, um, somebody I used to know by Gautier. I'm sure you're sick of it as much as I am. Um, it's because it got played way too much. But um, YouTube went direct to to them to negotiate the deal um, so that they can get their streaming rate on uh, uh, and get the video up on YouTube. And as as a result, because they did that deal direct, we weren't able to take that video and put it through Vivo and be able to monetize that video at a higher per stream rate. So, um, you know, they got half the money they would have gotten had uh, Universal gone and done that deal. So it happens quite a bit. Um, and, you know, working with a big company that has the leverage, um, certainly a company the size of Universal, which has so many artists, um, we are able to negotiate more favorable rates. Um, the reality is, um, and people forget this, is that the money is, kind of, the accounting of the money, like, you know, per stream, it's it's messy business. Um you know, it, we're talking about fractions of a penny here that get added up, and and I'm you know I'm frustrated as an employee sometimes because I get asked a question by the artists and managers. Well, you know, our video streamed uh, three million times. How much do I get paid on that? And one thing we got to remember is that a record company is a bank. Um, they put the money into the advertising and to shooting the videos and. Uh, you know, the way it would be at the bank. They get paid back first, and then you get paid. And a lot of times, there isn't money left over after that. And it's it's an unfortunate reality of our business. All right. So you, you just said something interesting to me. You said it ultimately results in a sale. And that's the next area I want to cover, which is under the, the topic wither ownership. Um, at what point do we think, let's start with this, at what point, or have we already reached the point where digital revenue is going to outstrip physical for you know, across the board. It's already happening. Okay. Um, I, you know, the number one, uh, the number one retailer is iTunes. Um, I, I just looked at something uh, recently for UMG. Uh, Spotify was number seven, jumped up from ten to seven in the past three months. Um, only three of the retailers in the top ten retailers are actual physical um, retailers. Um, Best Buy, Walmart. So, so digital ownership is already outstripping physical ownership, but I guess my question is, at what point will simply on-demand access outstrip ownership? Gosh, that's a prognostication you're asking me to make. I think within the next three years, actually, um, maybe even sooner. Uh, I, the way it's trending, it's interesting because when I look at Spotify, uh, I saw a recent uh, report that Spotify gave um, where in the markets where there are where there is Spotify, where they're seeing an increase in streams, they're actually seeing correlated per track downloads increase at the same time, and that was surprising data to me because I, I really wasn't expecting that um, because I pay my ten dollars every month to get Spotify, and I pretty much have my all I can eat. And you know, I, the last album I actually went and bought was maybe two years ago because I saw a band at South by Southwest and was amazed by this band and wanted to support the band. So uh, I'm, I'm sure I'm similar to lots of people that when I actually go and buy something that I'm voting because I'm, not just because I like the song, because I can get the song from any well, number I of I think you're similar to lots of people in the music business. None of us actually buy music because it's given to us for free. Well, I think that it's given to consumers for free too. I mean, you can go and, and 
you know, listen to Spotify and find anything that you want and not pay for it. I mean, they need to do a better job of actually in, enticing people to, to become that premium um, buyer. So, Other panelists, when do, what do you see happening with on-demand I mean, access think, versus ownership? Yeah, I don't, I don't know if it's three or, or five or four years away, but I think the time, the time will come in the very near future. I think part of that will be contingent on the fact that these guys are going to have to come up with better mobile products. So I think it's pretty clunky right now to have uh, you know, ubiquitous music on uh, your mobile device and that's you know that accounts for 50% of listening or something like that um, but just back to the the component of, of and I guess it's kind of an answer to two questions I think one of the problems with internet radio is that it's not at all social and I think when you look at subscription services going forward I think you know what most people want to do is listen to somebody else's station and it's not you know the folks at uh, Sirius, or it's not the folks at Clear Channel programming that. It's the you know ten people that you know that have the same taste in music as you. So I think those models need to evolve to allow people to listen to radio program by their peers, and and I think a lot of a lot of that's going to happen on mobile devices. So um, you know it's not a it's not a matter of if, but it's a matter of when, and it's, and it's when the product gets to a place where consumers don't have all sorts of false barriers. I think there's a Mark wrote a piece a year or so ago called The Death of Touch, um, which I think kind of relates to this. I think, like, I'm writing a book about 30 years from now. Okay, so I'm living way out there. Um, and um, it's not a futurism Do we book. have jetpacks? Yeah, no. Still, sadly, no. Um, future uh, sucks. <laughs> Future totally sucks, man. No, but it's not a it's not futurism. It's actually narrative journalism. So try to figure that one out. Um, but uh, this death of touch piece that Mark wrote starts with this scene in, in a record store where he's flipping through vinyl, and how we've lost that. And we've lost that with books. And I'm writing a book, and I'm expecting it essentially to be read by three of you on a Kindle. Um, no, hopefully more than that. But um, this death of touch is, I think, a part of the separation of the physical from the digital that we all, I think, grieve right now, and I think we're going to resolve in the next five to ten years. Ownership is a critical piece of that. You own that piece of vinyl. You own that book made of you know paper molecules. And I think we have to solve in our industry this um, unsolved riddle of ownership. Um, and so I actually hate Internet radio because I don't own any of it. I hate Apple for having made me no longer own music. Instead, I'm on a like lifetime lease, apparently. When I die, I can't give my music to my son, which, sorry, I'm going to. Um, I already have, actually. You, Whoops. you just can't authorize yeah. more. Uh, I can't authorize more. more. Yeah, it's like, in like 16 Mac Pro book, MacBooks later, I've, I'm already screwed. You know, I mean, it's too hard. Ownership is, was so easy. And, and because it made sense, because we understood the, the way the world worked in the physical world. We're still figuring out how to make this stuff work digitally. But I think one of the key things is going to be figuring out how do we, you know, work out the charley horse of what used to be known to us as owning. But as, let, let me ask you something. Are, are you just saying that because you are old? Um, uh, and I mean that, I mean that, yeah. it, I say it's that. It's entirely I say that, possible. I say that as a fellow old person, um, and I agree with you, but that's, I, that's, that's what we grew up it's with. It's entirely yeah. possible, but I really don't think that the concept of ownership is lost in one generation. I, I think it's totally gone. I don't even know if I still have a mic. Oh, there we go. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's, 
there, I, I don't think you know, 10 years down the road anybody's going to care about ownership. It's all going to be about access. As, uh, as internet access and mobile access and everything becomes more and more ubiquitous, nobody is going to care about actually owning a piece of it just as long as you have access to it wherever, whenever you are. That's all that matters. If you can get anything anywhere, why do you care if you, if you own it? Said, you also want to be able to share it. I can share friends. it. I'll share it on Facebook or you Twitter. You want to not be sued for doing that? Um, you no, want to you own can it. share through all the social services oh, right he, now. They, those are all... You're not going to get sued for it. It's not illegal. Those are all platforms where you don't own your own data but, and but you don't own your own domain and you for, don't own your own identity. For a, a younger generation of sharing is not me handing you a CD and saying, hey, listen to this. It's me sending you a a link or sending something to you digitally and saying retweets hey listen listen uh-huh. to this yeah. I don't even you know nobody pays attention to physical product or that anymore that is go ahead well I, I mean I, I guess I look at this <laughs> well I wrote, I wrote that piece about four years ago so there wasn't even oh sorry dude Spotify in the states um, and and uh, but I think one of the things when I was thinking about uh the death of touch was that when you used to buy physical music, you were beholden to, I mean, you were honoring that sunk cost. You'd listen to the whole record and you'd listen to it over and over and over again because you paid for it. And I think when you look to the future, people are going to listen to fewer numbers of songs by more artists. And I think a lot will be lost because people won't be invested in getting to know, you know, good pieces of art that take a longer time to appreciate. And so I think that you know, whether you're at a label or whether you're running a music platform, um, I think it will be harder and harder for career artists to make albums or to be focused on a, on a way to really, you know, become someone that can sustain a career for a long period of time. If the attention span is a link to one Spotify track sourced by some chart somewhere that somebody pays attention to. So I think there's a whole other conversation to have about yeah. physical media and then the longevity and prosperity of an artist. Explain, explain Wilco to me under that, under that theory. I feel, I mean, seriously, I feel like there was... there. The 90s, which was sort of the height of CD mania, were the dirt. You know, there was just a dearth of good albums then, to my mind. And I feel like the aughts, um, I, there was way more album level art being created. Um, and not just being created, but actually finding an audience and succeeding. In the 90s or up to now? And I, I think there was more in the last 10 years than there was in the 10 years before that. Uh, That's my impression. I don't know about that. I mean, they, they, they began their... Well, we can argue about yeah. music yeah. now. I don't know. <laughs> well, I saw Sunvolt on Sunday in Golden Gate Park, and so, you know, they launched... I think they're probably still sustained by the, uh, you know, projection that they but had again, in Okay, the just let me... I mean, let me get a show of hands, because this is clearly a subjective thing. Do people feel like there, it is harder... That there are less people... There, there, there are fewer good albums being made today than there were previously? Okay, and how many feel the opposite of that way? I win. <laughs> Sorry. Um, okay. Everybody loves is, the music of their own generation. Is that, because, is that because people have access to more albums now so they can find more good albums? And just back in the, in the 90s, the publicity for a good album was limited because there were only, at any given time, 20 albums being promoted? Oh. Well, there were fewer outlets to, to for discovery. I yeah. mean, that certainly is the case. And then, I, you know, if you look at the rise of electronic dance music, a lot of that is directly related to technology. 
Um, and, you know, it wasn't cool to like that stuff in the 90s. And, and when I did, it, you know, people were like, why do you like that? Uh, and now, you, you, because you can get it anywhere, um, there are, it's finding an audience. But I, I do want to say one thing about uh, the artwork and experience. It's one of the things I do miss about uh, the digital media space is that I used to, when I would come home with a piece of vinyl, yes, I'm that old, or... Uh, a CD, I, I would pour over the artwork and the booklet and read the lyrics and have this engaging experience with that package. And a lot of that is lost today. I mean, it was one of the things that, that we're actively working on trying to recreate that experience. And, and you can kind of do it in some way with Spotify. You can kind of do it in some way. I don't know that the digital booklets really do it um, in entirely, but building an immersive experience around that, that people can interact to the lyrics and, and really kind of have that experience that you used to have in the 90s, 80s, and before. Okay, let, let, let's get into that in a minute. There, I've, I want to throw out a theory here um, that I've been, I've been pounding for a couple of years now. My, my personal opinion is that as, we, as the music industry restructures itself around access rather than ownership, in the old days, the ownership model, basically the more you could sell, the more successful you were. Um, in an access model, the more often people listen to you, the more successful you are. I have a feeling that that not only is going to, but has been fundamentally changing music. All I, I know that in uh, earlier in the aughts, I spent a New Year's Eve at Madison Square Garden seeing Wilco, The Flaming Lips, and Slater Kinney. Those are three fucking cult bands, and they sold out Madison Square Garden. That was not possible in the 80s and 90s, and I, largely, I think this is largely because of digital distribution. Um, so that's my personal opinion. I could be completely wrong about that. Um, but I think it's easier to, for, an, uh, for a band with a, small, with a smaller audience to actually make a successful career these days, and I think there's plenty of examples of it. Um, but you, you talk about deluxe well, packaging. Define successful. Hmm? Define successful. Making a living, making music, uh, having health that, insurance. That's a good definition. That's a good definition. Yeah. I like that definition. Yeah, I, I, I mean, again, in the, the, you know, the old system, being successful meant you had to sell a lot. Because but that that's not a definition that I think a lot of the music industry superstructure would agree with. I think most musicians would agree with that right. definition. Um, anyway, but what I want to get into is this notion of, of you're, you're talking about creating experiences. So let's talk about, there, there's a couple things tied up in this. Let's talk about Kickstarter and fan funding, uh, creating deluxe packages that can go beyond just a booklet. It can be having dinner with the artist if you contribute enough. Um, how do you guys see that evolving? I, I guess I'll take it because I'm looking at that every single day. Um, we, are, we are bundling um, ticket sales with track downloads, uh, bundling signed lithos. Um, our, our D2C piece of our business is growing. Um, we're launching that ahead of, of the, even the pre-orders that we're doing with traditional retailers. And we're, we're finding not only significant revenue there, but um, getting fans so excited about these type of experiences and access that uh, they're doing my job for me. They're talking about it and tweeting and Facebooking and look what I got. And you know, every time we put something like that into the marketplace, I can actually track how that's impacting, even if it's a sign-up to an email list or um, the number of pre-orders that we're getting uh, in the more traditional retail space. So the, the, 
the next thing that I'm really looking at is, uh, particularly for artists where we have 360 deals, is um, selling those live performances, like pay-per-view concerts that everyone can enjoy from their mobile phone or sitting in their living room. And, uh, you know, the, the biggest challenge there for us is uh, some of the publishing hurdles that we're working through. But I really feel like in the next two years, you're going to see a lot of bands doing that. I'm looking to try to get at least one of those experiences off the ground before the end of this year. Um, just as a test to see how it's working and uh, you know, if we're successful with it, uh, you'll be hearing a lot about that in the, in the coming months. Others? I think that there's a great opportunity for all the sort of money can't buy type of experiences now with technology and being able to coordinate all of that and making it so that money actually can buy it. Uh, and then you can monetize the experience for fans and artists and get get people paid and give them all these different opportunities and bundle everything everything together there's with using using technology using using localization uh, and putting those pieces together uh, makes it so much easier for artists to get extra money from a fan that they wouldn't have otherwise yeah I mean I think you you know you've seen super fans for decades and decades doing, you know, manifesting themselves in different ways. I, I Buying think the Kiss Coffin, for example. Uh, tra- traveling around with the Grateful Dead for six months of the year. But nevertheless, I think, I think what's neat about those platforms is, you know, the more opportunities there are for artists to make a decent living, and you described, you know, success as being able to make a living. I mean, there's varying degrees of, of the living that an artist aspires to make, but those <laughs> platforms provide, you know, the, the, the equivalent of, you know, the speaking circuit for, you know, somebody that's, you know, retired from the corporate world. So I, I think the more these platforms afford people to, you know, a good living, the more great music will continue to be made. So, um, I, you know, I think if you can provide experiences that super fans want to pay for, then everybody wins because I get the fruits of uh, their being able to continue to be a musician longer. One thing that surprised me over the last month or two is I, it's the first time I've sensed the beginnings of a backlash against fan funding. The whole Amanda Palmer, Steve Albini, who's basically a professional curmudgeon, so it's hard to take him seriously, but he, he did raise some valid points. Um, I was surprised to see him calling out artists who, who solicit their fans to help them fund their projects as being somehow cheesy or embarrassing. Uh, do you guys feel that that's a feeling that's going to take hold? I, I don't think so. I think, in general, people realize that not everybody can have a huge bankroll to uh, put together an album or a video or a tour or that, and that you know it, it it does cost money, and people realize that they're not actually paying for much music anymore. So it has to come from somewhere, and they want to they want to support it. The big issue I think with Kickstarter and those those funding platforms is enforcement of actually delivering what was promised. There is a an example, and I really wish I could remember what band it was, and maybe somebody can remember and can yell it out. But where it's been like four years now, and they haven't delivered. I think I think an it was album. a dude from Animal Collective who wanted to go to Africa. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and all these people funded this project to uh, have an album come out, and he went to Africa to get inspiration and write songs. I don't know. He went to Africa with the money instead of actually putting something out, and it's been forever and what's what's the recourse on that and that's fucking one percenters yeah (laughs) that's what's going to turn people off though 
uh, of those platforms is if that happens more and more often, then skepticism and mistrust is going to pervade and and kill that that opportunity for the legitimate people. All right, that, seems, uh, that seems self-policing, though. If you if you're an artist that is trying to extend your fan base and create art off of your fan base, and you don't deliver. You'll lose lots of fans. So I, I, I'm more concerned about the other artists that will suffer as a result of that and lose funders because they've seen what other artists have done and they've just run off to Africa with their money and well, then won't fund the next guy. That's a messaging issue. It's like that's how you message and relate to your fans. I, and we there we have a band that called the Last Bison that. Uh, wanted to make a video, but they're in their recording period, so that means their marketing budget hasn't opened up yet. So the budget that's available to them right now is to make a record. But they wanted to make a video now, and I couldn't say yes to that because the budget isn't open. So they went on Kickstarter, they raised $5,000, they made an amazing video, a video that probably would have cost us as a label $20,000 to make, but they were able to do it in five because they got their friends and this one and that one to come help out and they funded it and pulled it off and got a video out there and managed to get with no marketing help yet, again, because my budget hasn't, it, I'm not in go mode yet, and got 80,000 streams on, on the record. And that was the spark that that when, when we went back and I went to the corners and I said, look what's happening here. They said, oh, well, maybe we should open that budget early. <laughs> and they did. And now, you know, and, and now we're in go mode. Um, bands on tour, all the, and all these things are starting to happen for them now. So I love it when the bands take the initiative to do that. I'm constantly encouraging them. In fact, I'm telling, you know, the ones saying, we want to do this. I said, well, let's look what this guy did over here, and I didn't tell you about it. Uh, and they're going and doing it. And every time they find some success, I then take that to the people that I need to go to to say yes and share that story and turn that not right now into a yes. What, what do you think the attitude is comparing people wanting to fund a band that is on Kickstarter that is an indie band versus a band that has a major label deal? And is there a bias to say, well, you've got a major label behind you. Why aren't they paying for this? Why am I as a fan paying well, for this? Not all deals are created equally, right? You know, some, it might be a P&D deal. It, it, it might be... Yeah, you know, there there might be limited money that's gonna. It might just be money. Their deal with the label was to finish their record or to go get uh, name producers or to. I mean, you know, there it, it's all different. It's kind and, of hard. Well, and interestingly, what happened to Amanda Palmer was that part of the reason there was a backlash was you know she was going on tour and offering people an experience of playing with her but not paying her, which was mainly an issue because everyone knew she'd just taken. It was very transparent. She'd just taken in over a million dollars. So all of a sudden she had, you know, the public perception of her was she was elevated to another status where she shouldn't be doing that shit. All right. One thing, so we're going to get to audience questions in just a minute. One last topic I want to cover with the panel before you guys come up with your own ideas. Um, you mentioned sharing before um, and in, in social. So, you know, I remember a year ago or two years ago, everybody was talking about Turntable FM. Uh, I haven't heard anyone mention it recently. So what's the next big social thing and uh, how soon will people not care about it anymore? <laughs> I'm going to let them start oh, at the okay. end of the table. All right. Uh, I'll start and I'll be uh, a, a little bit biased. I'm just, uh, there's a company that I'm involved with called Song Freaks that uh, had a big announcement with AOL this morning and a, of a partnership. And the big thing with Song Freaks is basically applying 
the principles of Foursquare to music and allowing people to not only earn badges but also compete. And the more they interact with an artist, they can become the top fan of an artist. And then being able to, down the line, break that up geographically so that artists can see where their biggest fans are, where they have the most fans, who their top fan is in each individual market. And then uh, leverage that to create better touring uh, and do better promos for places where they're, where they're going to be and reward those fans. I like that idea. If someone comes up to me and says, I'm your biggest fan, I can check the app and go, no, you're not. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm, I'm your biggest fan in San Francisco. Uh, no, that is uh, Music Fan 2007-5. All right. And, and really building in all of that gamification and all that, those fun aspects for users and rewarding the users uh, with, uh, with extra prizes and extra experiences so that an artist can say, oh, you're my biggest fan in San Francisco, so if, and I'm doing a show, so if you're here coming to... It, I'm, if you come to the show, come backstage and we'll do a little meet and greet, and you know they're going to buy a ticket for sure. I mean, I, I, so that sounds like a good idea. We're, we're working on the same thing. I, I will just say, to, to answer your question, though, um, in, a, in, a diff, in a different way, so download Tastemaker X and, and, and check it out yourself. I, I think one of the problems... Um, that you cited, or the, the turntable problem is, first of all, if you're in the digital music space and you are aspire to be a venture-backed company, um, what you hear on Sandhill Road is, we don't do music. I mean, there's been two outcomes in 12 years, and they weren't even great outcomes if you count Last FM and, and Pandora. Um, so those I think Pandora was pretty good for the investors. Not depends when, depend, depends when they got in. So, I mean, that, that business... <laughs> or when they, when they got out. <laughs> Uh, but nevertheless, I think the biggest problem with the next big thing is because music startups typically are underfunded, you end up building a feature, not a company and not a platform. So, you know, you could argue that turntable.fm was a feature and not a company and not a platform. And, you know, quite not long after, all the other big platforms had a group listening functionality. So I think the next big thing is in the music space is typically a function of how, how much money do you have to build the thing that you actually want to build? And um, that's been the problem for 10 years, mostly because of the contentious relationships that music startups have with labels and then the kind of thin skin that the venture community has to bet, or, you know, make a bet around something as broadly, uh, you know, kind of a, a universal love um, as broad as music. So I think you're going to see a lot of things flame out because they don't have the resources to sustain, you know, the vision that they set out to build. And then even if they build it, how long does it take to make that money back? Sure. So we're we're noting companies that could be the next big thing. Is that, you answer uh, however you interpret it, Nostradamus. Is, I just wanted to ask you the question. You're the dude writing a book about thirty years from now, dude. <laughs> trust me, it fucking hurts. Um, I, I think Tastemaker's cool. Uh, do Stuff Media uh, is a company I'm working with right now to do the back end on a festival I'm doing in three days called Open Co. SF, which is a celebration of innovative companies in San Francisco. The back end of that is really interesting. It's the same thing that lets you pick your schedules for all the lineups for Bonnaroo and Outside Lands and Lollapalooza and you know all that. Um, but they have a front end now, which is um, a media site, which goes, which is you know helps old guys like me figure out you know what's happening in my city that I'm missing right which is I think a big deal when you know you move to the suburbs and you get kids you know you miss 
you know. You should move to the suburbs. You miss, <laughs> you miss the fact that Grizzly Bear is playing tonight until you run into your friend here and he's like, you're such an idiot. Why aren't you at the Grizzly Bear show? I'm like, because I got three kids, man. I've got three uh, kids, too. I know. <laughs> Anyways, Do Stuff Media is cool. We're working with them on Open Co. And none of those six kids give a shit about touching their... I got to tell you that I got the same taste in music as my kids, though. Thanks in large part to him and Tastemaker. But there's a company you guys should watch that is not directly related to this space called Rebel Mouse. Um, and the reason I'm saying that is because I think they, they figure something out that's fundamentally important, which is social media is yours. It's not theirs. And by theirs, I mean the platforms that you are feeding um, you guys, all of us, are the trees um, in that fabled Lorax uh, book, um, The Truffle of Trees. Um, and it's the big platforms, in my opinion, that are um, harvesting those trees, your data, and turning it into the ability to market to lots of people. And you're not getting the value I think you deserve. Um, Rebel Mouse, I think, is one step towards recapturing that value. So check it out. All right, uh, it's time to open it up to audience questions. I don't get to answer? Oh, yeah, yeah, well, <laughs> while, while, while we choose who we're going to call on, you can answer. Well, I'll be quick because um, uh, one of the things that I'm, I'm certainly motivated around sharing um, because seeing that the per-track download business is going to go the way the CD eventually and streaming is going to take the place of that in terms of revenue generation for record companies and folks I work for. Um, so sharing is very key. Uh, I'm very focused around Spotify and how do I actually get more streams there. Um, so uh, you'll see clever marketing tricks to actually get people to s- stream on something or share um, share the music that they're listening to. Um, group group playlisting, collaborative playlisting experience, that kind of thing um, that we're to- totally looking at right now. All right. Um, I saw this guy here in the second row was first dude up with his hand up, so he gets to go first. When will mashups be legal? When can my daughter make a YouTube video to her favorite songs? Thirty thirty. <laughs> yep. That soon? <laughs> Some of it's already happening. Um, we're using a tool called Audish to do video mashups. Um, that so it's a plugin that goes on the tab on the Facebook. Um, so there's the actual video that was recorded, and then people can create video. I've seen that this app Video Star, uh, where you basically you know take your MP3s and make your own video. Um, so it's happening now. I think as you start to be able to identify more and more content that is used in the mashup, then it at least opens up the opportunity to divide the revenue up among everyone and try to make it legal. But there's more money to be made from suing than there is from selling. No argument there. That's why why my answer is 30-30. How important will uh, cable television distribution be for music? And is that uh, a better way to engage the older demographic to be purchasing either subscription or other products tied into music? Like MTV cable music or music choice cable music? Like the, the streaming channels? I mean, music choice is making a play to move to mobile um, 
because I mean, even the cable companies, you know, I, I have my, you know, I have my my HBO to go on my iPad here, and I mean, so I, I think I think that will happen as uh, as it gets tethered to mobile. I think we'll start seeing more of that, um, but I, I I don't know. And more and more people there are cutting the cable, right? And so I think that starts to marginalize that that side of things, and that's why people like Music Choice Music Choice are moving towards digital and mobile and other platforms. Yeah, I think you got to kind of like Google in that scenario. As soon as people are, you know, streaming over their TV, that's the biggest repository of, of most of that stuff, live and and, uh, and recorded. All right, do I get to choose or are you choosing? There's lots of people with their hands up up here. <laughs> there, are, there are rumors that uh, Microsoft's going to buy RDO. Do you foresee a trend in that where major companies are going to start snatching up streaming services as an add-on to, let's say, their tablets or their other uh, services in the cloud? Seems like a nice fit for their Xbox Live experience, so... Yeah, it seems like that's the direction it's moving in. Yeah, I'd be very curious to see if that's what they actually do with it. And and some of it also has happened. You know, Beats buying Mog, Samsung buying MSpot, and you know, RDO is is a perfect fit for Microsoft. They they've got the the international territories. They've got the content. They've got a great service uh, there, and their subscriber count is relatively low compared to others. So they should be a little bit cheaper to buy than if Microsoft wanted to buy Spotify or Rhapsody or whoever else. Yeah, who's going to buy Rhapsody? <laughs> That's what Rob Glazer's asking. <laughs> All right, more questions. Right here, this guy's very eager. Hi. Um, I think a lot of the uh, streaming platforms and social platforms are great at taking something it's already in the echo chamber and making it bounce around the walls faster. But do you guys see anything that's on, that's on the rise that can take something that's outside of it and, you know, without marketing necessarily, but like an algorithm or, or something that can take up content and get it kind of organically to, to that place where people are finding it rather than, um, you know, through more blunt, mar- you know, forced marketing? Handle. <laughs> Well, I mean, I guess I'll shill for our business. I mean, my hope That's is... That's what his does. My hope is that artists uh, that want to drive, uh, you know, a different kind of signal use... And we use a stock market metaphor, so like the Hollywood Stock Exchange or Fantasy Sports. If you're an artist that push people to our platform, um, you'll see artists that chart on a daily basis. And I, we conducted this experiment in my living room uh, with a So Far Sounds show a couple weeks ago. All the, the bands, you know, asked people to buy shares of their band... Um, which pushed them up to number one on the chart, and then they were picked up by We Are Hunted a couple days later. So I think, um, I, I think artists that are smart social marketers will look to platforms that can actually create a signal that will be distributed across a whole bunch of other charts. And I, and I think when you think about you know, the bands that can break without major label support or without funding, they'll be really good at Twitter, and they'll be really good at Facebook, and they'll be really good at picking up anything that can uh, you know, provide a signal back to their fan base. So... Um, I think, you know, social media is a skill set that, you know, artists either need to outsource or, you know, become good at themselves. But I think you can I think you can really put yourself out there if you can get into social feeds uh, all over the place, whether it's, you know, Facebook or Twitter, or Instagram. 
Will we ever see the sales of CD or higher quality 24-bit 96 kilohertz audio? And will stems ever be a, a market that we see sales of uh, content in? Uh, wow. I'm constantly in the hunt for stems from bands to, so that we can do uh, like remix promotions. I noticed that when we do those type of things, use like a platform like an Indaba, that I do see an increase in per track sales when we're running a campaign like that. So, of course, I want to do more of it. But not every band is going to let you do that, right? Their vision of their music, when they actually go in and record it, this is it. Uh, so it really takes quite a bit of convincing. You know, for the last 10 bands I talked to about doing it, giving me access to their stems to do some kind of promotion like that, only two said yes. Um, so, you know, for me, I'm building the case studies to show that for those that said yes, here are the results, and then taking them back to the other eight that said no. So I think it's a case-by-case basis. Um, Eventually, I think we'll get there. Um, and particularly on the electronic dance music scene, we're going to see a lot more of that. Um, it's because, just by nature of how the music is made. And, um, so. What about higher quality audio? Does, is there a market that cares that's big enough? It'll probably be incremental because we've had early lockdown. In the tech industry, when you get early lockdown, it's hard to unlock. Um, and good enough seems to be always good enough, right? Yeah, I, I think on the I mean, high quality... Neil Young notwithstanding this. With, with high Talk quality audio, the answer is no. I, I just don't think it's a big enough market. Uh, and you know, we all know the difficulties of, uh, of licensing and, that, and the vast majority of people, the 99.9%, don't care about anything better than what they're getting now. The only way people will end up adopting higher quality audio is if the bandwidth gets to a point where it doesn't really make a difference and that's that's a ways off. I, I had to have that conversation with Neil Young. It was really awkward. <laughs> <laughs> I love him. Well, right, you I called him old? <laughs> not to his face, no. Well, he knows. He knows. He I'm sings about You don't have to call him. You can call him a digital immigrant, right? <laughs> so, you know, you don't yeah. have to say old. Oh, digital immigrant versus digital natives. Yeah, I mean, I get that someone like Neil Young wants and appreciates higher quality audio, but he's part of the 0.01% or whatever. So, um, I like your definition of uh, success for a musician. Um, and I think John was saying other people have a different definition. What do you think about are we ever going to get to a point where people are entities, not, not labels, would want to invest in a musician and advance them money besides a major label? I think that's, a, def- that's a, a marquee, when people feel like the marketplace for investing in talent, not necessarily software or platforms. Do you see a future there? What, what do you think? Are we even ever going to approach that? Are we going to? Uh, some of it is happening today um, when there are investors. Some of the bands that come to us have investors. Um, I mean, and most if you look at the traditional production deal, right? The those producers that basically produce the record for free because they're going to take uh, they're going to take their money on the back end. So, in some instances, it's currently happening. Um, I 
I heard about a conference that is uh, occurring in New York where there literally is bands are coming and, you know, VCs, if you will, are going to be there to, to, to buy into them. But I think what those individuals are looking for are not so much like, you know, what they're going to get paid off a, a record sale, but sync, um, sync licensing, um, it's the money there is much bigger than you would ever get from a per track stream or download, you know. So it, in some instances it's happening, but it's, you know, like you've got to really look under the surface to find it. People invest in restaurants all the time, um, never to make money. Uh, yeah. Usually, um, and I think with the stuff like Kickstarter and some of the modeling, like that Mark's doing at Tastemaker, where we are starting to kind of train culture to think about investing directly into into something you love. That's why people invest in restaurants. It's because a you get a table, and b you really dig the idea of having this restaurant in your neighborhood, or it's a friend of yours, or whatever. Um, I can see that happening with the you know with the fabric the digital fabric that's being built now. I can see it happening, and by and with the Jobs Act passing, and the ability to actually buy little pieces of equity uh, in, in in entities, um, even if you're not a accredited invest, investor, um, I can see it happening. All right, I, I got a final question for the panel, uh, which I'm stealing from Ann Powers, which is, which musicians working today will we still be talking about 30 years from now? <laughs> <laughs> wow um, apparently I was wrong about good album level what, art being what, made today I, I, I talk, talk, talking about it in the way that oh you remember back 30 years ago these guys were really good <laughs> like we're going to be sitting around and not like they're Millie Vanilla too much joy <laughs> the resurgence is coming any day now I'm going to say touring bands I'm going to say someone like Dave Matthews band just because of what they've been able to do with touring. I, I don't know if we're going to be talking about their latest album. Are they still going to be touring 30 years from now? <laughs> it, quite possibly. I mean, they, they may not be touring in the, in the sense that we know today, but they might you know, set up in an SIR studio and perform, and it comes, streams the concert directly to your living room or your phone uh, in 30 years. I think so that's still talking about because like, they're still working? So I don't want to see Dave Matthews in 30 years. Yeah. The, the wheelchair tour. <laughs> who will be, working or not, who will be looked back on fondly as, as being a major force? Beck, Mercer, That's Danger. a different question. Okay. I mean, I, I guess I go with the touring band metaphor. I mean, I think bands like My Morning Jacket and people that really, really, you know, create music to be seen live. And there's a you know bands like Radiohead you know oh, yeah. who cross over between being studio. This is like answers. the desert island question, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's a very I, I, think I think we're going to be talking about Justin Bieber, but not positively. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and then la- last yeah, one on the floor eating a hamburger. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just go forward one month. Romney or Obama? I'm Canadian, so it's got to be Obama I- all the way. <laughs> Scary. Uh, otherwise, uh, my morning jacket. <laughs> oh, please, Obama. I hope <laughs> she's not saying. <laughs> I'm not saying. It's Obama. He's got it. You heard it from me. You can you, you can call me up and yell at me on on November 6th if I'm wrong. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank Go you. eat lunch.